This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's going on, folks? Welcome to My Take Radio, episode 119 for Thursday, December 8th, 2011. My Take Radio is brought to you by Stitcher.com slash My Take This Week. If you enter My Take in the promo code, you will be entered to win a $100 gift card courtesy of Stitcher and My Take Radio. So MTR This Week is brought to you by our Stitcher app. My Take Radio is also brought to you by our Amazon affiliate store. Head over to MyTakeRadio.com, hit the Amazon Affiliate Store button to do all your shopping through the Amazon Marketplace, and you'll be helping out MyTakeRadio. You'll be able to pick up the latest movies, video games, gadgets and gear, and a ton of other stuff that we talk about on, on the site and on the show through our Amazon Affiliate Store, so look for that as well. The call-in number is 347-324-3541. Again, that call-in number is 347 347- Three two four three five four one. We got a couple of things to address this week. We managed to get our issues with Mixler fixed, so you can listen to My Take Radio on the Facebook fan page, courtesy of Mixler. Going forward, we are also able now to simulcast directly on the fan page, and if you take the Mixler player and log in with your mobile phone you'll be able to listen to it on any mobile device as well i was also notified this week that some people are actually taking their phones and syncing them with bluetooth stereos and playing episodes of mtr with stitcher via bluetooth so that's another option stitcher is a great alternative to downloading mp3s and sync cables and again if you enter the my take promo code you'll be able to win 100 dollars. stitcher is available on the android ios webos and blackberry on on all those devices and in marketplaces for each of those corresponding devices as well last but not least you can also help my take radio by checking in on get glue if you're a get glue user check in on mytakeradio.com or from the fan page directly and you'll be able to help us out and show your support that way. As I've said the last couple of weeks, we're supposed to have stickers to reward you guys with. I don't know what the hell is going on, and I just stopped asking. So that's one of the things I wanted to address. Also, on the on the housekeeping front, the MTR forums are officially dead. They were offline earlier this week. We finally succeeded in doing that. As I've said in previous weeks, the reason for the demise of the forums was a couple of things. Number one was the lack of engagement. Number two was just the fact that the medium itself is evolving and we are now able to do the shows and promote the shows better with social networking via Twitter and Facebook. With that said, the fan count on our page is currently at 1,667 as of 11 o'clock this evening. Uh, We're still on point to try and get 2,000 followers before the year is out. Please make sure if you are an MMA, wrestling, video game, or movie fan and know others that like similar interests, 
please make sure to direct them to us. We offer a pretty good product, and it's pretty family-friendly for everybody, uh, unless you're under 18, in which case, get your parents' permission before listening. Also, you can pick up your MTR t-shirt from our t-shirt store. Just head over to the MTR shop link on mytakeradio.com, and you'll be able to pick up a nice and nice brand new and crispy MTR t-shirt. We have no guests this week, but starting next week, we'll be getting back on the guest train. We will be speaking with Cal- with uh, Calvin Theobald, who is the director and producer of the documentary The King of Chinatown. For those of you not familiar with that documentary, The King of Chinatown follows the Street Fighter fighting game community and a host of its professional personalities, including gamers like Justin Wong, Prodigy X, Daigo, and it shows the uh, a behind-the-scenes look into the Street Fighter tournament scene, and he will be joining us next week, so we'll be talking about that and also the work that went into bringing that to the masses. If you are interested in checking it out, you can look for it on kingofchinatown.com. You can also look for King of Chinatown on iTunes. We got a couple of new articles this week. I have been slightly behind only because we've been very busy with a couple of other things. And of course, during the holidays, every site that I know usually hits a bit of a lull with regards to coverage. We will be stepping that up in the coming days. There will be some free time on my part due to taking some days here and there. So you'll be seeing some new stuff on MTR. In addition to that, I had started a review on the DC 52 number ones. I'm a little uncertain if I'm going to proceed with it only because we are already, I believe, into the third or fourth issue for some of these books. But I may just pick and choose a couple and throw my six cents out there um, in terms of giving you guys uh, my thoughts overall on the series. I just want to be able to forecast where I see the series going depending on which ones I review and giving you guys a little bit of feedback with that. I, I warded that so poorly and I apologize, but you guys get the idea. Also, we recorded a new interview for the MTR Beyond the Mic series with Stephen Brooks from Rubber Onion Animation. That's available exclusively to MTR app owners and Stitcher subscribers. So if you want to check that out, just make sure to update your apps and you'll be able to get it. And if you're on Stitcher, you probably heard it already. Uh, Stephen is a friend of mine. We've discussed animation on a couple of occasions and we also talk about MMA as well but in this particular interview we focused more on animation including the work he does with Rubber Onion Animation but also um, we got his take on the evolution of animation as a whole from 2D to 3D uh, what's right what's wrong what we'd like to see different um, it was a great interview usually our interviews are an hour and we went nearly two hours with this interview I'm very proud of it. It was an honor and a pleasure to speak to Steven so intimately about his work with Rubber Onion Animation, and I invite you guys to check it out. As I've said, if you have any feedback, any commentary you'd like to share with the listeners of MTR, you can hit up our feedback line, 347-815-0687, 347-815-0MTR is the number you can call i was supposed to have recorded an intro for the voicemail and i've been behind but don't think that you shouldn't leave one because they'll still be played on air if you do not want your voicemail on air please make sure to let me know in your message so that i can review it accordingly that's going to wrap up the housekeeping tonight's topics we're going to talk about the ultimate fighter finale we're going to talk about monday night raw 
we are going to talk a little bit about UFC 140. I just wrapped up a show with MMA Gospel doing my picks for UFC 140. I suggest you check those guys out. Uh, hard, hard, Hardcore group of guys there. Gary, Spill Bag of Ice, uh, Dan and the MMA Gospel family. Those guys do great work. They deliver uh, nice, no-strings-attached no view on mixed martial arts. They're not trying to pad their site for hits. They're not trying to do any of the typical bullshit you see. Straightforward coverage, to the point. Spill Bag of Ice does a great job with Spill Bag of Fights. And you do yourself a disservice as a mixed martial arts fan if you're not checking out his work. And MMA Gospel broadcasts on Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Like I said, I just finished a show with them. So if you want to check out my UFC 140 fight picks, you can go there for that as well. Now, I also am recording something for the ECA for their Voice of a Gamer series. I will share that with you guys next week as soon as it's posted. Um, That actually is going to require me to give you guys a little bit more background into the ECA, which I will do once the interview is up. So be on the lookout for that. But this week, what I wanted to talk about for the opening monologue, there were a couple of things I really wanted to get into. I wanted to talk about um, something that happened with Rashad Evans and the at the UFC on Fox press conference, I did want to talk about what happened with Miguel Torres, but I figure I'm going to save that for the MMA segment of tonight's broadcast. But I did want to talk about an article that appeared on Jezebel.com that my wife actually gave to me, which, as usual with with many websites and mainstream media in general, I'm always having to come on on air to. I guess to defend the gaming community, especially with the stigma that's associated with violent video games. It's something that I find myself having to do every couple of weeks. And this particular article from Jezebel, I'm not going to read it to you in in its entirety, but um, it's interesting because the, the headline for this article was video, Violent Video Games Turning Men Into Crazed Murderers was the headline for this article, and I'm just going to read you a little bit about this and share my thoughts on it for this week's monologue. The article starts as follows. Opponents of violent imagery in video games have been stymied for years by the fact that no actual evidence existed to support their theory that in-game behavior led to in-life behavior. After all, Grand Theft Auto didn't lead to a suburban car theft and prostituting prostitute rape epidemic. Bioshock didn't lead to the mass murder of librarians. L.A. Noir didn't cause police to be any more crooked than they already not, than they already were. By now, new research has linked violent video games to a change in thought patterns that could lead to violent behavior in men. Which I'm gonna just give my thoughts on that. According to I'm, I'm gonna probably mispronounce this. Futurity. Researchers at Indiana University have found what they say is preliminary evidence that video game playing and a decrease in both cognitive function and brain control are linked. The study analyzed the brain patterns of 28 men between the ages of 18 and 29 who had little prior exposure to violent video games. The men were randomly assigned to one of two groups. The first group was told to play 10 hours of violent video games over the course of a week and then refrain from playing for one week. The other group was told to forsake video games altogether for a two-week period. 
Based on this study, subjects and researchers reconvened after the first week and their thought and association patterns were analyzed. Men who had played games showed significant decreases in activity and parts of the brain that regulate emotional control and cognitive activity. But according to the rest of this article, which I'm going to read, but don't worry gamers or significant others of gamers, the brain changes aren't permanent. Researchers say that their findings are evidence that violent video games cause long-term damage, but in fact, after a week of, ab of abstaining from making sweet love to the PlayStation, the men in the game playing group were more or less back to normal. This isn't to say that the media we choose to consume doesn't affect us. To suggest otherwise is either dishonest or obtuse. But it's still not fair to say definitively that immoral behavior in a virtual space is eroding behavior in the physical space. Now, I, I appreciate what they were trying to convey in this article. And research, to me, is something that, while it is applied for, for the benefits of, of studies and things like that, I feel that the use of research to prove or dispel anything regarding gaming habits is ridiculous. We live in an age where we have AIDS, breast cancer, testicular cancer, pancreatic cancer, various diseases killing us, killing us across the board. Last month alone, when we did the breast cancer awareness event, actually in October, I apologize since we're in December, in October when we did the breast cancer awareness event, we discussed some of the figures that were involved with women, uh, with young women, well, with women in general, uh, losing the battle to breast cancer and the fact that nothing has been done to move that forward. And when I see research applied to something so trivial as what we value as gamers and what, what kind of uh, habits we pick up from being gamers, it just boggles my mind. Now... In, in saying that vi that video games um, change your cognitive reasoning, I, I I can understand where that comes from because any medium you consume is going to alter the way you think, period. This goes from literature to music to games to television. This is fact. The fact that they pigeonholed it into video games alone is very one-sided in my view. Honestly... I've watched movies that have had excruciating amounts of violence and sure, you know, you, they may cause a nightmare or they may mess with your thinking, but it's not something that's considered, in my opinion, detrimental. You get out of it what you put into it. If you watch a movie and you apply all your mental energy into dissecting that movie and searching for a message, of course that's going to resonate with you in some shape, way, or form, period. This happens with anything. I remember I read Fight Club. I've read Fight Club, I would like to say, at least eight times. And every time I've read Fight Club, I've taken something different from it. And it has changed my perception and my view of thinking for a number of reasons. And the reasoning is that I start to connect certain parts of my everyday life with certain messages that were in the book. That's not something that was forced. That's not something that's detrimental. That's called you using your fucking brain. If you're playing a game, it requires um, hand-eye coordination, muscle memory, um, it requires a thought process, and the brain is required to put it to put work in 
to play these games, whether they're violent or non-violent. I really would have liked to have seen this study conducted with with a counter being that you're playing non-violent video games and compare what the brain functions of men that played violent video games and men that played non-violent video games look like as opposed to comparing it to men that didn't play any games. I just find it to be a very skewed skewed um, research. That, that That's it. I think that when it comes to gaming in general, why can't the mainstream press and anybody else just accept the fucking fact that it's just video games? If we weren't playing video games and we were playing board games, would the same amount of research be applied? Can you apply the same research to somebody who plays poker and gambles? It, it it's I, I really have such issue with research facilities and testing being required to show that video games are detrimental. Why can't you just accept the fact that video games are a pastime? Simple as that. The same way you play baseball, the same way uh, you play cards, the same way you play dominoes, you go jogging, you go to the gym. These are all things that affect you. And if it's if it's meant to affect you in multiple ways, then that's how it is. Gaming to me is a physical and mental game, especially with the advances of things like the Wii, the Kinect, and the PlayStation Move. Your body is involved, your brain is involved, and... It, it has to work that way. It's it's as simple as that. I'm horrified to see this research being wasted on something so fucking foolish. It, it, it boggles my mind. You really can apply this energy to so many other things. And it's, it's heartbreaking that we invest so much energy to make video games look like a negative pastime. When that energy can be applied elsewhere. Simple as that. All right. With that out of the way, I want to jump right into Mixed Martial Arts because I want to talk about the tough finale. We got a couple of things that went down this week in MMA, and rather than sit here and tease it, let's just jump right into it. Alright, I'll probably be changing this intro next week since the Ultimate Fighter is over, but I will say that the season delivered in many aspects. We got to see some really great talent come forth from this season, uh, and a lot of exciting fights on the cards, so let's get right into it. I want to just talk about a couple of fights first off. Um, I want to get into the main card and talk about the lightweight bout between Eve Edwards and Tony Ferguson. Um, I was expecting... Uh, a great performance from Eve Edwards. Tony Ferguson looked really good in this fight. Very aggressive um, in the first two rounds. Edwards, though, came back in the third, but it was not enough to prevent Ferguson from securing a unanimous victory. With regards to the Tough 14 finales for bantamweight and featherweight, on the bantamweight side, you had John Dodson and TJ Dillashaw. John Dodson was motivated, hungry, and extremely dangerous in the way he took this fight. It was vicious with a TKO victory via strikes. The fight opened up with Dillashaw coming out, throwing some kicks, trying to catch trying to catch Dodson. It wasn't working. Dodson was scoring with punches, um, a great varied attack with kicks, 
and uh, using leg kicks a little bit. Dillashaw had no answer to Dotson's speed, which was ridiculous. Um, at which point, later on in the first, he caught him with a pair of left hooks. Dillashaw looked definitely like he was in trouble, at which point Dodson pounced and took the victory, like I said, via TKO with strikes, minute and 54 seconds in round one. The second part of the finale were the featherweights, Dennis Bermudez and Diego Brandao. I was actually kind of pulling for Bermudez only because um, Brandao has a future in this sport regardless, but it was fantastic. Brandao opened up uh, immediately trying to do some head hunting. Bermudez, though, was smart, tied him up, and Brandao, though, was trying to go in and finish the fight early, which was which was to be expected. Some guys just want to come out, and they're not getting paid by the hour, so hey, can't blame the guy. He did get dropped by Bermudez at one point, but Brandao recovered well and stunned Bermudez, a great back and forth, and it turned out that Brandao went to the ground, took the fight to the ground with a, uh, a straight right from Bermudez, and um, all of a sudden when Bermudez went in for the kill, Brandao shocked him and caught him with an arm bar, at which point Brandao secured the victory via submission, arm bar, 4 minutes 51 seconds in round 1. I was very surprised the way that fight went, um, considering how, how aggressive Bermudez looked in the fight, but Brandao, Brandao's wily man. He he played it off, played possum, and then secured the armbar. Very impressive victory from him. On the main event side of things, Michael Bisping meeting uh, fellow coach Jason Mayhem Miller. Uh, Miller looked pretty good in the first round, and then out of nowhere, Bisping just unleashed a barrage of strikes. It was to the point where I almost felt bad for Mayhem. I think Mayhem. Um, he he got he got caught out there. I think that fighting in the big show, and that's not to say that he doesn't have experience doing that, but I have a, a feeling that's a factor. I also feel that Mayhem's time away from the cage was also a factor. But Bisping's striking was phenomenal, phenomenal, and a lot of people are writing off Mayhem Miller from this performance. And once again, I have to question the logic of the quote-unquote fickle MMA fans because he had one shitty performance. So what? And, you know, Dana White, oh, I don't know if, if, if Mayhem will be fighting in the UFC again. You have a guy that's extremely marketable, knows how to how to be um, a personality and sell fights. So what? He had a shitty performance. Bisping is it, Bisping is a, is a great fighter. He, he has great stand-up. Obviously, my internet connection decided today of all days while I'm on air to all of a sudden reset itself. So I apologize for that. Uh, props to Slick for stepping in and once again being a savior, so thank you, Slick. As I was saying before uh, my internet decided to stick its foot straight up my ass, um, writing off, I, I was talking about the fickle fans and automatically writing off Mayhem Miller. Every fighter has a bad performance at some point in their career. I think Mayhem Miller deserves the opportunity to redeem himself and compete in the UFC. I think he would do better in his next appearance in the octagon it happens to the best of us now it, with regards to bisping this that's put this def, this performance definitely puts him up there to be noticed in the middleweight division 
Mayhem, I, I think he probably is going to need one or two more fights before you automatically start writing him off. And I really ask fans to not do that with any of these fighters and to give him a chance. If you've seen any of Mayhem's previous fights, you know that he's an exciting fighter and a great personality for the sport. Overall, this season of Tough was fantastic. I was very impressed with the way it went down. Sure, there were certain aspects of it that seemed to have lulled a bit, but overall it was a solid season and a great swan song for The Ultimate Fighter on Spike TV. And we'll be on the lookout now for The Ultimate Fighter as it debuts on FX. And I actually have news about who will be coaching that season later on in the segment. Now, with regards to that performance in general, everybody did really great. John Dodson got KO of the night, got himself a $40,000 bonus. Diego Brandao got submission of the night, and Diego Brandao and Dennis Bermudez got fight of the night. In addition to that, the fighters won $25,000 bonuses via fan-voted awards on the Ultimate Fighter finale. Best knockout went to John Dodson. Uh, Dennis Bermudez got best submission, and Luis Gadanot and Dennis Pegg got best fight of the season. Those guys take home $25,000. Now, with regards to the payouts for the fight... Michael Bisping made $425,000, including a $150,000 win bonus. Mayhem Miller made $45,000. Diego Brandao made $16,000, including his $8,000 win bonus. Dennis Bermudez made $8,000. And John Dodson also made $16,000 versus DJ De, uh, TJ Dillashoff's $8,000. I just wanted to throw that out there so you guys can see uh, how that money breaks down with the fighters. Like I said, overall a great season. Looking forward to seeing it on FX. In some other news, it looks like MTV is throwing their hat into the MMA ring. They will be debuting a new documentary series about amateur MMA fighters called Caged. That's going to be debuting January 9th. And it's going to focus on the Louisiana amateur MMA scene. It's going to air at 10 p.m. Eastern. And it's going to follow a handful of small town, uh, small, a handful of fighters in a small town of Louisiana who are trying to figure out life after high school. The show is going to follow their lives in and out of the cage, similar to The Ultimate Fighter to some degree. It's also going to show an inside look into the Louisiana MMA scene, which has gotten a lot of attention due to the Fightville documentary, which had a uh, appearances by Dustin Poirier and Tim Crider from the UFC. So be on the lookout for that January 9th. I'll definitely be checking it out, and I will be sharing my thoughts on that with you guys later on in the month of January. So be on the lookout for that. This weekend is UFC 140. As I said, I shared my fight picks on MMA Gospel Radio. UFC 140 will be on pay-per-view starting at 10 p.m. Eastern. And you'll also now be able to watch it on Xbox Live. There are some of us that have access to the Xbox Live app. Um, I myself am one of them. And thanks to our friends at MMA Valor, we'll be able to completely beta test the experience of watching the fight on pay-per-view. I did get to see UFC 139 on the Xbox Live app, but I couldn't share my thoughts with you guys out of fear that Microsoft would whoop my ass. So, unfortunately, I was unable to do it, but it seems that for UFC 140, that rule does not apply. So, I'll be able to share my thoughts not only on the experience of watching a UFC event on Xbox Live, but all the little bells and whistles that Microsoft has added to the UFC app to make viewing the pay-per-view unenjoyable experience. On that card, you'll be able to see, of course, the champion, John Jones, defending his light heavyweight title against Lyoto Machida. 
Frank Mir is going to be meeting Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira. Um, Little Nog is going to be facing Tito Ortiz. Brian Ebersol is fighting Claude Patrick. Mark Hominick is taking on Chan Sung Jung. If you want to see the prelims, you can catch those on Ion Television. Igor Porkryats and Christoph Szynski will be meeting. Jared Hammond and Konstantinos Filippou would also be meeting. Dennis Hallman, John McDessie, Yves Jabouin, and Wallel Watson are for the Ion card. On the Facebook prelims, you'll be able to watch Mark Bocek, Nick Lentz, Rich Antonito, uh, Jake Hecht, and John Cholish and Mitch Clark are going to be on the Facebook card. You'll just hit that like button for the UFC Facebook page, and you'll be able to catch those fights as well. Now, of course, with any UFC event coming up, there's always a lot of stuff going on for fight week, so I'll be sharing some news with regards to, to that. But before I do, I did want to talk about one of my favorite upstart organizations, and that is Bellator, who will be moving to Friday nights beginning in March of their sixth season. So be on the lookout for that. Bellator on Friday night should be very interesting. It will be competing against WWE's Friday night SmackDown programming, so we'll be able to see how well their numbers fare against professional wrestling, at least in my opinion, and it's something worth keeping an eye on for sure. In addition to that, the move for Fridays will also compete against episodes of The Ultimate Fighter and certain UFC cards on FX as well. On the FX side of things, The Ultimate Fighter will be featuring live fights at the end of each episode, so we will see how Bellator can fare in that realm. UFC on Fox 1, well, on FX 1, excuse me, has come together with a date of January 20th at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, The main event is Melvin Gillard against Jim Miller. You got Dwayne Ludwig and Josh Neer. Pat Barry versus Christian Moorcraft. Jorge Rivera versus Eric Schaefer. Uh, Mike Brown is taking on Wagner Roca. Ryan Jimmo debuting in the UFC will be taking on Carlos Vemela. Um, Wow, this guy's name I'm going to mess up. Nura... Khabib Nuragomdev is going to be taking on Kamal Shalarus. Reza Madadi is going to be taking on Rafael Oliveira. And it's rumored that Charlie Brenneman will be meeting Daniel Roberts to round out that card. And the prelims for that will be on Fuel TV. In some Strikeforce news, which we discussed on MMA Gospel earlier, it's been announced that Christiane Cyborg Santos is back in Strikeforce. And there are rumors that she may drop down to 135. Um, to meet some of the competitors in that division, given that her division is very, very light at the moment. I think that seeing Cyborg move down to 135 should be interesting. She's gone on record as saying that it's going to be in, it's going to be difficult. She also said that she's going to make the move there because there's more work for me there. She wants to try and do both weight classes, but she feels that there are great opportunities at 135. So be on the lookout for that. I think seeing Christian Cyborg Santos at 135 is going to make for an exciting division. And if she can fight in both, more power to her. But it's going to be an interesting, interesting few months for the 135-pound women's division. In some other Strikeforce news, the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix will be finalized in March. Daniel Cormier broke his hand against Antonio Silva, and he is healing up currently and will be facing Josh Barnett. As I said earlier, the new coaches for the next season of The Ultimate Fighter, which is The Ultimate Fighter Live, which will be airing on FX, are going to be Dominic Cruz and Uriah Faber. The first episode is going to be airing on FX with live fights that's going to start March 9th at 9 p.m. with a two-hour episode 
after that, episodes will be airing at 10 p.m. Eastern every night. It's going to be 13 weeks focusing on lightweight and welterweight fighters. In some real disheartening news that I heard this week, welterweight champion George St. Pierre blew out his ACL and is currently on the shelf for 10 months. Due to that injury they are creating, as usual when it happens, an interim title for Carlos Condit and Nick Diaz to face off for. It's going to be a very exciting fight. I think Diaz and Condit have the potential to blow the roof off as soon as they get as soon as they get their opportunities. Um, a lot of people are saying Nick Diaz, uh, GSP dodge Nick Diaz. There's you you can interpret it any way you wish. I think that if you blew out your ACL, you blew out your ACL, and if it's medically proven, clearly it's not like you plan to have your ACL fuck up. So. I am excited to see Condit and Diaz. I think Diaz has the potential to take Condit out and become your interim welterweight champion, and he will face GSP at some point or another. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But Condit and Diaz poses a very interesting fight. Both guys like to stand and bang. They both like to engage. So I have a feeling that that fight is going to be pure fireworks. In some other Bellator news, Bjorn Rebney has announced that Ultimate Fighter Season 6 cast member War Machine, formerly known as John Copenhaver, is officially now a Bellator fighter. I'm actually very happy for War Machine. War Machine's had a, a rough road after the Ultimate Fighter, especially going to prison and all that stuff. War Machine is a really unique personality in the sense that he he's very outspoken, but he also is very exciting to watch, regardless of how you feel about him from his adult film career to changing his name legally to War Machine. There's just certain fighters out there that have a, a great marketability around them, either because of their appearance or because of the way they interact with the fans. And War Machine, to me, is one of those guys. And I hope that this experience with Bellator can help him and help him evolve into a better fighter. So... Congrats to War Machine, and I look forward to seeing him fight in Bellator. During the UFC on Fox press conference, it was Dana White confirmed that he will be making some announcements regarding the debut of a 125-pound flyweight division very soon, which should be interesting. There's a lot of great 125-pound fighters out there that have actually gained weight just to fight in other weight classes to compete in other organizations so having a lot of these guys fight at their natural weight is going to be very interesting we're going to see what kind of fighters are out there at 125 and i actually had a chuckle to myself because i said now that you're creating a 125 pound division maybe kenny florian will decide to cut more weight since he can probably challenge for a belt at 125 since it's going to be brand new talent that's just a running gag I have with Kenny Florian, and I figured it would be a great opportunity to throw that out there. I'm sure Spilled Bag, who's in the chat, will get a chuckle out of that. Dana White also confirmed that Strike Force is going to be around. He's going to be making some um, announcements with regards to Strike Force's future sooner rather than later. I'm actually excited to see that. I hope that Strike Force is a becomes a proving ground for the UFC and there's a renewed focus on women's mixed martial arts. We discussed this on MMA Gospel and I really would like to see Strike Force become almost a feeder league and an organization where you can start preparing some of these fighters for the big dance. It's a great organization for that and Showtime would be an excellent proving ground to get these fighters ready for pay-per-view. So, I'm looking forward to that. Now, of course, Fight Week had its fair share of controversy 
two things happened this week that I wanted to discuss a little further. I discussed them on MMA Gospel, and I want to share them with you guys. Number one was a comment that was made by Rashad Evans to Phil Davis during their um, during their exchange for the UFC on Fox card. And it was something along the lines where it was referenced where I'm going to put my hands on you just like that coach in Penn State did on those little boys, which I understand that you got to trash talk to hype a fight, but it was just a stupid thing to do on, on Rashad's part. Really fucking stupid. That's number one. Number two, Dana White is treating this relationship with Fox like a fucking baby. This is his child. This is something that's taking years and work to bring to fruition. And he will not stand idly by and have people fuck this up, which is something I I didn't touch upon when I was on MMA Gospel. But the fact is, you see how Dana White tries to craft these fights to even get on Fox. And here you have a guy who's fighting on broadcast television referencing uh, the raping of children. In, in, in a fight hype promo, so to speak. I felt it was poor execution by Rashad Evans. Rashad Evans is very well-spoken, and regardless of whether he's likable or non-likable, common sense should have come into play where you know that public television executives are watching this with a fucking microscope. You're a moron. And I'm glad Dana White pulled him to the side and addressed it because it was a real idiotic thing to do when you're dealing with something as sensitive as broadcast television. This goes back to what happened a few years back with WWE during the Nexus angle. There was a point during the Nexus angle where Daniel Bryan uh, choked the ring announcer with his tie and the censors and the, and the, and the broadcast and broadcast television brass felt that it was a little overboard, which resulted in Daniel Bryan being uh, terminated and released from his contract and brought back later on once the heat died down. The funny thing is that that was for something that was scripted. When you're dealing with public television and you're dealing with something that is still very much in its in its infancy, I would almost equate MMA at this point to being in its teenage years, you want to handle it with white gloves, especially with dealing with networks. If we go back to Strike Force and their relationship with CBS, you know that once the shit went down with Strike Force, it painted the organization negatively and CBS very quickly remove themselves from the situation to the point where we never saw strike force back on CBS this is this is something that's very very volatile and the UFC needs to really sit down with their fighters and tell them look we understand you guys like to talk shit and have fun but you need to realize that people are scrutinizing everything you fucking say It's simple as that. The faster people understand that, the quicker some of these instances will not happen. Which leads me to the second thing that happened, which was Miguel Torres. Miguel Torres made a rape joke recently, and pretty much he tweeted the following. If a rape van was called a surprise van, more women wouldn't mind going for rides in them. Everyone likes surprises. Of course, after that tweet went out, I think somebody told him that he fucked up, and he changed the word rape to windowless but like anything on twitter the damage was already done and it spread like wildfire now miguel torres was uh brought to task by dana white and 
pretty much put in the position where he needed to apologize. Miguel Torres stood his ground and stated that, you know, if I can joke about some things and not others, then I shouldn't apologize. It seemed that um, based off of that, he was released. And the problem with that, once again, goes into poor planning and poor execution. Um, on the UFC's part, I think that it was a little rash to cut Miguel Torres for that. I honestly think that there's a level of education and um, you can you can actually cite something along the lines of making him do community service or fining him for the commentary. I think that the problem nowadays is that we have become way too sensitive about what's discussed. I've said this on numerous occasions. And while the joke was in poor taste... All that it required was a talking to. If he didn't want to, if he did not want to apologize, then the correct rule of thumb, in my opinion, would have been to put him in a in, in a PR role where he would have to go and take sensitivity training, maybe working in a rape crisis center for 30 days and paying a fine, because that way you can see that those words that you used have affected some people. And by working and, and, and educating him as an individual, you're actually doing something beneficial for the sport. It's very easy to sever ties because it looks more powerful on paper. But at the end of the day, all you're doing is cutting this guy loose and he's going to go fight another or in another organization. And we're just going to move on from the situation. It needs to be addressed differently. I think that Miguel Torres, Rashad Evans... Even Forrest Griffin. Forrest Griffin went and made amends on his own um, with regards to a, a, a rape-related tweet that he made. And, you know, I applaud Forrest for that. And what he did was what should have been enacted for, for these guys. Hey, you saw that Forrest did that. You know, maybe we should use it going forward. Listen, Miguel, look, I understand you're very passionate about it and you refuse to apologize. But at least for the sake of the organization, we are going to send you to, uh, you know... Um, a rape center or to work with a charity that assists women that have been victims of rape just because it's something for the organization and it helps to paint a different picture. I think that the problem with the jokes in general that we're told is the fact that people have an issue differentiating between a joke and the fact that fighters are not going to sit there and genuinely condone rape. It's, it's a silly assumption to make, and the fact that the general public continues to make fuck-ups like that the norm is beyond me. Clearly, I sincerely doubt that Miguel Torres is going to sit there and advocate rape in any shape, way, or form. Much like I think Rashad Evans, I mean, uh, Forrest Griffin wasn't going to do that either. Even Rashad Evans in his trash talking, it wasn't like he was co-signing to children being raped. In Rashad Evans' case, though, I felt that was a bigger fuck-up because you are promoting an event on network television, which to me has more weight than just a random tweet. You are doing this in front of a press conference. You are doing this in front of network executives, media, etc., etc., and that has more of an impact. Did Miguel Torres fuck up? Yes. Should he have been crucified for it? No. Should he should he have been held accountable for it? Absolutely. And that's where I and I said this on on MMA Gospel also where policing these fighters, if you're going to police them, you have to enact something that's across the board. Dana White is guilty of saying some real foul ball shit too. Nobody polices him. 
and it's, you know, pot meat kettle. Rashad Evans, Forrest Griffin, Miguel Torres should have been maybe given a fine, possibly sent to do some charity work for the offending organizations that they that they addressed in their tweets, and that would have been it. We could have moved on from it, and it wouldn't have snowballed into something so big where Miguel Torres loses his livelihood, Rashad Evans makes the, organi- the organization look like shit, and Forrest Griffin makes his own apology. I just think that something unified would work across the board, and I am disheartened to see that Miguel Torres was made an example of. Honestly, while Miguel Torres made the joke and it was in poor taste, uh, Rashad Evans did something far more damaging in my opinion. That's pretty much it. I am going to take a quick commercial break. When we get back, we're going to talk some professional wrestling right after this. You know those shows where they play video game music and they laugh in like really high voices like... <laughs> well, you won't listen to that on our show because uh, we don't have the budget for that kind of thing. We're broke as hell. And uh, nobody really cares that much to laugh that hard. So um, if you're looking for a show like that, that has horrible audio quality and uh, void of fake laughter, Video Game News Radio, 11 p.m. Tuesday nights on all games. Alright, let's talk Monday Night Raw. I'm just going to pluck a couple of things out of here this week that I enjoyed in particular. Um, one of the opening matches, Randy Orton versus The Miz, was actually a very good match. Of course, Wade Barrett, his involvement kind of fucked things up, and it resulted in The in the Miz winning. But the chemistry that was there between both wrestlers was actually very good, considering how I feel about Blandy Borton. I think that him working with The Miz at some point would be beneficial for both wrestlers. I really liked the pacing of the match and this renewed uh, mean streak in The Miz since he's been separated with R-Truth has done nothing but help his character. I think working with and putting him in a program with someone like Randy Orton would definitely be beneficial. Of course, them being on separate brands isn't even a factor anymore, but the match between them showed that it can definitely lead to something great. Wade Barrett, I have to also tip my hat to because he's definitely coming into his own ever since separating from the Nexus. There was a bit of a period where I thought they were just going to drop the ball with him completely, but he's definitely coming up into the big dance, and I have to give credit where credit is due. In some other news from the Raw broadcast, we found out that Kevin Nash will be facing Triple H in a ladder match where a sledgehammer will be hanging above the ring. Of course, whoever grabs the sledgehammer will have the legal right to use it and is the winner. I have a couple of issues with this match. Number one, this is not the type of match I would put a wrestler like Kevin Nash in. I equate this to making Sid Vicious come off the top rope, and we saw how that went. 
I think that wrestlers should really be put in matches that capitalize on their strengths. Putting Nash in this type of a match, especially with the the injuries he's been prone to, is really dangerous for him. Not so much for Triple H, but for Nash, it concerns me only because of his knee issues and the possibility that a very high-risk spot can go extremely wrong. Could you have done something else? Could you have done a tables match? Maybe a chair match? Absolutely. Putting these two guys in a ladder match leaves this leaves room for probably two big spots maybe a pedigree off the ladder or a jackknife powerbomb off the ladder possibly through an announce table those things are possible but i can tell you this triple h needs to be the re- on the receiving end of any large spot i don't think kevin nash physically has the the capacity to take a, a huge bump like that i think that it can do more harm than good for him with regards to his career And personally, I'm not 100% excited for this match because I don't see it being the match that everyone is making it out to be. I think it's going to be a little chaotic. And like I said, all it takes is one fuck-up to ruin Kevin Nash. So overall, we'll see how that pans out. The second match of the evening was Alberto Del Rio and Daniel Bryan. Once again, WWE continues to make Daniel Bryan their bitch. And at the expense of Ricardo Montalban is is completely fucking asinine. Daniel Bryan is a submission specialist, has the money in the bank briefcase. I understand you want to push Del Rio, but making Daniel Bryan lose to the cross arm breaker makes him look stupid. It makes him look completely stupid. It ruins his credibility by having him lose to fucking Del Taco. I was I was dumbfounded that they went this route totally and utterly dumbfounded but this is the wwe and for every good thing they do they they do three things to fuck it up third match of the evening kelly kelly and eve torres wow we haven't seen that before versus beth phoenix and natalia of course alicia fox proved to be the x factor distracting beth phoenix to allow kelly kelly to secure the victory with a roll-up on beth phoenix i really just it's becoming so formulaic seeing these four women wrestling every week. Is Has it really gotten that bad to where you can't do something else with them? It's Kelly Kelly, Eve, Alicia Fox, and Beth Phoenix. And now, of course, there will probably be a new member to pin up strong. I'm not going to spoil it completely for you guys, but you're, you'll be seeing the evolution of that particular member on Friday Night SmackDown. I will say that if that does happen, it'll add an extra dynamic to this feud with Beth Phoenix and Natalia, but overall, if you're going to continue to use the same four divas in a match, all you're doing is setting yourself up for the same repetitive bullshit every week, and what it's going to do is do more harm than good to your women's division. The next match of the evening was John Cena and Zack Ryder. Um, John Cena and Zack Ryder was a phenomenal match uh, for a couple of reasons, only because... While the match in itself was subpar, the reason I, sh- I want to say it was phenomenal to me was because every wrestler has a coming out party. He has that one match that really helps set him apart from other wrestlers. And Zack Ryder's been slowly but surely making his way up the card, having great matches and great feuds with other wrestlers, and his work with John Cena was very well done. 
I like the fact that they allowed Ryder a good amount of offense. It wasn't completely Super Cena, but it completely wasn't a squash, which was good. I think that putting Zack Ryder in that position opened up a wealth of possibilities. I think that this is the kind of match where it it easily can be used to facilitate a heel turn for someone like John Cena. Zack Ryder taking him to the limit. John Cena gets the, the, the upset victory. Ryder gives him a handshake. Cena proceeds to blindside Ryan and show that, you know, Zack Ryder isn't in his league. That's the instant uh, heel turn you can do, but that's obviously fantasy booking on my part. But the match itself, while it was okay, the the overall impact of the match was very well done. Um, Zack Ryder was then put in a second match with Mark Henry, which was a no-count-out, no-DQ match. Obviously, Ryder was uh, on the bitter end of this, and John Cena was pretty much instructed that if he wanted Ryder to get a U.S. title shot, he'd have to be willing to give up his WWE Championship opportunity, which he did, and in turn, Cena went out and helped Ryder secure the victory, and it was a nice feel-good moment. Ryder now challenges for the U.S. title at the pay-per-view. The funny thing in my eyes with that is that using Zack Ryder and using Mark Henry for that, you could have done it a little differently. I just think that using Mark Henry in this particular instance hurt him as the champion for SmackDown since he lost to Ryder. But you can attribute Cena's involvement as the X Factor, and in some ways it does it does offset a little bit of the damage done, but I'm happy that Zack Ryder will get his championship opportunity, and I'm hoping he wins it. I think you can do so much with him on television on a weekly basis, but um, it is what it is. We'll see how it pans out. The next match of the evening was another Kevin Nash squash with Santino Morella. This is pretty much the fate of Santino now, glorified jobber to Kevin Nash every week, which is unfortunate because Santino, they could have done a lot with him. He's just been pigeonholed in this comedy gimmick. So, you know, it is what it is. Dolph Ziggler and Sheamus was the next match of the night. Very, very, very good match with Sheamus getting the victory due to a little distraction from Zack Ryder's music. Ziggler is in a, in a league of his own in terms of guys that are destined for greatness. He has all the tools, look, wrestling ability, promo ability at this point. I would actually focus on separating him from Vicky Guerrero just to see how he stands on his own. I think Dolph Ziggler is, has crossed that hurdle of needing Vicky Guerrero to get over as a heel. Dolph Ziggler has the tools to make, make it not only as a heel, but as a face of an organization. So, with that said, um... Last but not least, it's been confirmed based on their victories earlier in the evening that CM Punk will be meeting Del Rio and The Miz at um, TLC, which, you know, it, it's cool. I mean, I have no problem with it. I think the match itself is going to be excruciatingly spot-driven, especially by CM Punk. Uh, the Miz does really well in these matches. Del Rio, I, I hit and miss. I think we can expect some really good ladder spots, and we can expect some good chair spots as well. But overall, I would have actually have liked to have seen CM Punk, The Miz, and John Cena in the TLC match with The Miz and CM Punk kind of branching off and possibly keeping the belt on Punk, but setting up that new feud 
with The Miz. I think that The Miz and Punk would do very well in a feud together, and I hope that that's the direction they take it in because The Miz and Punk has the makings of a great um, Stone Cold Steve Austin rock rivalry only because they're so different. You have the snobbish uh, reality star in The Miz against the straight-edge savior CM Punk. The stories write themselves there, and both guys have the promo ability to keep that moving so with that said i am looking forward to tlc for a couple of things i'm interested in the return of kane and seeing what they plan on doing with that and how they're going to make kane relevant overall raw was pretty good not a complete bag of shit but um not great either it was just there i i enjoyed parts of it but some parts i definitely did question especially the women's matches in some other wwe news they are releasing a best of the king of the ring DVD and Blu-ray set that'll be coming out December 13th. They got a couple of really, really great matches in there. I'm not going to name all the matches, but I will name a couple for bullet points. They're putting the match from King of the Ring uh, 13 from June 1993 with Bret Hart and Bam Bam Bigelow. That's a really great match. Hulk Hogan and Yokozuna was all is also being shown. Owen Hart and Razor Ramon, fantastic match from June 1994. Um... I really like that match only because it showed how how great Owen Hart was and how much of an impact he'd have in the future. The Kiss My Foot match was a nice trip down memory lane, uh, June 25th, 1995, with Bret Hart and Jerry Lawler. I remember that like if it was yesterday. One match I'm shocked to see on here was Gold Dust versus Ahmed Johnson from 1996 legendary match there for a couple of reasons and of course stone cold steve austin and jake the snake roberts we know how that went Shawn michaels and the british bulldog is also on that card uh triple h and mankind ken shamrock and the rock uh undertaker and mankind from hell in the cell which was which was uh king of the ring from 1998 undertaker and the rock from king of the ring also the six-man tag match for the wwe championship from king of the ring with uh triple h Vince and Shane McMahon against The Undertaker, Kane, and The Rock. I, I'm surprised they even put that on there just because that match is so randomly awesome and such a gem. I'm glad to see that there. Rikishi and Kurt Angle, I don't know why that's there. Uh, Jeff Hardy and X-Pac, Edge versus Kurt Angle. And I did want to reference the street fight between Shane McMahon and Kurt Angle from uh, King of the Ring 2001. And also Rob Van Dam and Brock Lesnar is another fantastic match. Lastly, I want to talk about the Hulk Hogan and Kurt Angle match, which also is on there from King of the Ring 2002. The Blu-ray version, though, comes with a couple of extras. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Wildman Mark Merrow. Um, Triple H versus The Undertaker from June 2002. Kurt Angle and Randy Orton from the opening round of King of the Ring in 2006. CM Punk and Chris Jericho from 2008. And Del Rio versus Daniel Bryan from 2010. I think the best of compilations that WWE are, are putting out are great, great, great collector's items. And I recommend if you haven't picked them up, you do, just so you can see some of these really awesome classic matches. It's a great trip down memory lane. Some other things I wanted to discuss in this week's wrestling news. Um, this can go into the movie category, but I wanted to discuss it here. And it's the fact that they are working on a feature film about the late Chris Benoit SRG Films put out a press release that they will be adapting the book Ring of Hell, the story of Chris Benoit and the fall of the professional wrestling industry. 
That was written by Matthew Randazzo, and it's going to be adapted into a film. According to the press release, the book is going to follow the pressures that Benoit faced throughout his wrestling career, including um, how the factors of drug use, depression, and head trauma became increasingly impossible for him to handle. The film is going to be produced by SRG Films head Dale Alexander Carnegie, and it's being written by Sarah Coulter. Um, I am curious to see how well they're going to translate this to screen and what damage, if any, this is going to do to the wrestling industry. Obviously, the crime that Chris Benoit committed is something that the wrestling community tries very hard to distance itself from for a multitude of reasons. Clearly, it opened the door not only to steroid use, but to the importance of monitoring concussions in professional wrestling and also the fact that brain damage can be a huge factor as well. I'm curious for that. I actually may try and do some homework. Maybe I can talk to uh, someone from SRG or possibly talk to the writer because I'm curious as to how they're going to portray Chris Benoit and make people empathize with his situation and feel sorry for him considering the grisly and terrible nature of his crime. It's scheduled to begin production in 2012. In some other news, former Miss USA and WWE Tough Enough contestant Rima Faki was arrested on suspicion of drunk driving. So uh, she's not in jail, but she'll probably have to uh, pay a fine and do some community service. But yep, Rima Faki, drunk driving. Next week, I believe, is the WWE Slammy Awards. They're going to be nominating superstars in multiple categories one of the categories that the participants were revealed for was the superstar of the year as of right now the nominees are mark henry cm punk john cena alberto del rio the miz and randy orton out of all of those superstars the only superstar in my eyes that is superstar of the year is cm punk uh, number one for taking the industry, turning it on its head, and mainstreaming an angle that had so much going on behind the scenes that it made CM Punk become bigger than the business itself. So I think CM Punk hopefully will be the recipient of the Superstar of the Year awards. And that's going to wrap it up for wrestling this week. I'm actually going to not take a commercial break and go right into video games because there are so many things to discuss That was, of course, from GTA 4. I figured it'd be a uh, different, a different um, bumper for this week. Usually, it's Angry Birds or uh, something from Mario, but I figured GTA 4 would be a nice trip down memory lane for many of you guys, um, especially with the uh, the lovable and always awesome Nico Bellic. So that was the bumper for this week. Let's get into some video games. First off, Xenoblade Chronicles is coming to North American shores. Nintendo confirmed an April 2012 release date for the Wii RPG. Um, originally, you, you a lot of people were picking up the game on import, 
but it's actually going to be something which will be released exclusively at GameStop and Nintendo.com's website for $49.99. As of right now, it is expected to be in the U.S. In a- on April 3rd. GameStop has it listed for an April 2nd release, so if you are a fan of the Xenoblade Chronicles, you'll be able to play that in April of 2012. A game that many people have played in various incarnations choplifter will be getting an hd remake available on xbox live psn and pc at some point this winter no release date has been given as of yet but konami is working with developer in exile to make it happen now the game is going to have of course a zombie mode but it's also going to have some cameos from a lot of the industry's legendary video game characters including super meat boy and duke nukem amongst others Needless to say, you can keep an eye out for that later on this winter. I want to talk a little bit about THQ. They've been in the news this week for uh, posting some really, really rough losses and closing in the stock market at some very low values. Part of the reason for that is the negative reception for the UDRAW tablet for the PS3 and 360. Originally, the UDRAW tablet was extremely successful on the Wii during the early part of 2011, but it seems that it hasn't caught on for the 360 and PS3, which is unfortunate considering that using the tablet on something like the PS3 and the 360 would have been different and something new, but it just didn't take off, which, excuse me, which of course has bit THQ in the ass. Something to consider also when they look at the third quarter numbers, which will be available in February, is the uh, the work that WWE 12 and Saints Row have done for THQ as a whole, and we'll see if those franchises were profitable enough to help them perform better for the fiscal year for 2012. In some other news, um, Shigeru Miyamoto, of course, you know Shigeru Miyamoto's uh, Miyamoto, Miyamoto, some people pronounce it differently, but you guys get the idea. Of course, known for The Legend of Zelda, Super Mario, and many more titles associated with Nintendo, was rumored to be retiring or stepping down from his current position, according to Wired Magazine. Nintendo released a statement Thursday stating that that was not true. They went on to say that the comments that were published by Wired were uh, taken out of context, excuse me. With that said, what was meant in the statement was that he would be retiring from his current position. And he's not retiring from Nintendo at all. He just wanted to um, retire from that position. He wants to work on training the younger generation, but not stepping down. So with that said, I think that there was an issue with it being lost in translation. Regardless of the fact... A lot of people sent me this information. They were just like, oh no, and this is the death knell for Nintendo and blah, blah, blah. And I really wanted to go deeper into this for this reason. While Shigeru Miyamoto did great things with Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, and plenty of first-party titles, the reason that Nintendo's in the state that it's in is not because of Shigeru Miyamoto's involvement or lack thereof. Nintendo, in my opinion, is in the position it's in because it's continued to rely on an outdated model to stay relevant. And I've said that in countless episodes and countless times. You 
have all these great properties and instead of doing something to move them forward we continue to just get them with fresher coats of paint the only times we do see them evolve is when it's to introduce and sell a new piece of hardware such as the 3ds which we've seen and also with even the wii to some extent it's where you really want people to pick up your console not on the strength of the game that's being developed for the console but on the strength of how it can move hardware which is unfortunate i think that shigeru miyamoto has um has an it was an inspiration for countless developers and still is but his involvement in nintendo whether it's full-time part-time in a training capacity i think is not going to change the fact that nintendo really needs to shift from the way of thinking that they've had only because it's the only way they're going to be able to stay relevant simple as that the other big news this week was something involving the playstation vita originally the name of the game was the fact that you would need to do a factory reset to switch between psn accounts turns out that is not the case though psn ids are tied to vita's proprietary memory cards but not the console itself that means that for you to access multiple accounts you're going to need to swap cards on the system all that's need the only time you're going to need to do a format is when you are changing the ID on the memory card itself. So for people that are losing their minds and going crazy, you will be able to share a Vita. You'll just need to purchase multiple memory cards. Unfortunately, that's still going to be a little bit on the expensive side because these memory cards are going to run $30. So it's it's something that's not great, but it's not as bad as everybody was playing it out to be. Um, Vita memory cards at 30 bucks. It's it's gonna definitely factor into multi console well multiplayer households because for each for each ID it's gonna require a memory card. So if you got three kids, that's the pr- that's pretty much the cost of one game for them just to have separate separate identities on this console. It's gonna be very interesting to see where they go with this and how well this is embraced by the gaming community. I've also been informed that Slick. Um, wanted to bring something to the table with regards to gaming, so I am awaiting his uh, his input, and I'm going to bring him on right now. Slick, what's going on, brother? What's up, man? Uh, minus that little fuck-up with our, with our internet connection just randomly disappearing. Other than that, we are pretty peachy. What's the deal, dude? Yeah, that's um, just a note on that thing with the Vita. That's that's some news that I think is really gonna hurt sales for the Vita because you said the card's thirty bucks. That's for the four gigabyte card. Right. They're selling up to thirty two gigabyte cards, and that one's over a hundred dollars. Yeah, but you know what the funny thing is with that? I, I do see that probably getting a price cut at some point. I do I do have to agree that that will be a detriment. But to my knowledge, when people play these portable consoles, usually it is. A console per family member so i think each person will have their id card very rarely do i see an entire family share a handheld console i mean the i don't have any figures to back it up but as far as i know if you have three kids that means three kids have game boys it's not three kids yeah. sharing one game boy amongst themselves so while i do see it being a detriment from a price standpoint i don't see it really impacting the the overall 
saturation of the console. Because to be honest, you know, if you have three kids, you're going to make sure three kids have three handhelds. Simple as that. Although you're right about that. It's just that... The pricing does suck. (laughs) The ridiculous pricing for the memory card is hurting the fact that people were initially happy, at least it seemed like they were happy with the price of the Vita, considering what you get from the console. Oh, no, I agree. I mean, with what you were getting from the console, the, the pricing was definitely a factor. But like anything else, they're going to they're gonna entice you in the beginning. And then as, as it gets closer and closer to release, you know, we start seeing a lot of the real bullshit that comes associated with it. You know that happened with the 3DS as well. It was all beautiful and everybody loved it until it got closer and closer and closer and closer to release. And we started seeing less and less and less things that we actually ended up liking. Yeah, but the thing is, the 3DS was overpriced when it came out, which it's the same price as the Vita, really, but at least you can buy whatever uh, uh, SD card you want. That is true. You gotta buy proprietary Sony flash cards for the PS Vita. And those are the only cards that'll work. Well, the worst part about that is the fact that once again, Sony jumps back into the fucking pool with their proprietary shit, knowing damn well that every time they try to introduce some proprietary garbage, it bites them in the ass. UMD anyone? Minidisc anyone? You know, the list goes on and on of you guys trying to put out this proprietary shit. Use regular fucking SD cards or even use your own Sony cards and be done with it. Use the memory sticks and move on. No, we gotta try and be extra with it. They think they're fancy because they won the, the format war with the Blu-ray, but if they were going to use a proprietary card, they should have stuck with the, the Memory Pro Duo from the old PSP. There you go. If you wanted to do that, or even just memory stick in general, you know, even what they already use, use what's already out there because it's, it's something that's easily accessible to, to the consumer. I've always said it. If you make something idiot-proof, they'll make a better idiot. You know how many parents are going to be fucking confused when they walk in there to get memory cards thinking, no, I can just pick up this this memory card that's on the shelf and not know that it's a proprietary card? People forget that a lot of times parents are going to go and buy this for their kids blindly without any notion of what is involved in it. And of course, they'll be taken to school by whatever sales rep is working the floor that day in whatever GameStop or Best Buy or other big box retailer they go to. But the fact of the matter is that Parents are going to go in there uninformed, and this is going to lead to a lot of mistakes. Yes, it will. You know that as but, a fact. Um, you've you've gone to Best Buy. You see these uninformed parents just wandering down the aisles, grabbing whatever they can that resembles whatever their kid wants. That's because I mean, that's because parents just hear what their kids want they don't do any kind of research that's a whole other issue right but think about that now with these memory cards knowing that they're going to get a memory card they're, they're automatically going to be like ah, it's probably going to be an SD card or whatever the PSP normally uses and it's like eh, wrong answer really wrong answer there you go what else did you have to add my but, friend um, I was reading an article I forget even which on which site Actually, I think it was IGN. And they were talking about the future of gaming. And one of the things they said was going away. We've talked about this to some extent before. 
was um, complete games. In other words, the, the disc that you get in the box when you buy the game being the finished product. Because they're saying that people are relying more and more on downloading content and they're just putting out a game, you know, pretty much half-assed. Well, it, the the worst part of that is that I can understand how that article is relevant, but this also boils down to the fact that we as the gamer and as the gaming community accept that. If we have an issue with a game coming out half-assed, then we should make our opinions heard and our feelings felt. The only problem is that we actually become enamored with the beauty of the game from a graphical standpoint that we're willing to overlook in some cases some of the fuckery that goes on do you do you have any idea how angry sometimes i get with capcom for that for what they've done they're like yeah you bought super street fighter 4 but oh wait here's super street fighter 4 arcade edition oh no here's super street fighter 4 2012 arcade edition oh no here's this oh you want costumes they're gonna cost you three bucks same thing with ultimate marvel versus capcom 3 it, it, it's going one time too many to the woodshed, and what happens is people will remember that, and they will become sour on that company. And if you continue to release games with the reliance on downloadable content, people are going to start getting fed up. Sure, you're making millions of dollars now from map packs for Call of Duty, but that same rule of thumb isn't going to apply for a game like Uncharted, which you know you play for the enjoyment of the levels, and then you realize that you're getting a game that's half-complete. That if you want to finish, you're going to have to pay an extra 10 bucks for. The cost to own is going to really piss people off at that point. Well, yeah, but um, that actually brought me to something else. Because so many companies are doing that shit. You know, going to the world multiple times. There was, um... I just picked up WWE 12. And it had... One thing that I ran into that pissed me off and another one that actually seems like it needs to be picked up by more companies. It's, um, it has that online access shit that, that EA's been doing where you actually, you know, if you're the first person to buy the game, you can go on Xbox Live or PSN for free, which anybody should be able to do. But let's say... I sell it to GameStop and somebody else buys it, or I even, let's say I even give it to you. Yeah, I have to pay the you extra money to go extra, online. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's... Again, that's bullshit, but another thing they did, because, and this is one of the reasons why I even got the game, because they have so many, you know, uh, classic wrestlers on it, and they're supposed to be bringing out more and more. They did this thing called the Fan Access Pack, where basically I got it on Xbox, it was 960 points, which because I already had it, there was nothing for me. But um, basically any downloadable content that comes out for the game now or going forward, I don't have to pay for it anymore. Oh yeah, they, they did that also with uh, Gears of War, with the, with a, they, they call it a season pass, where you pay a, a set amount and it covers every update for the game for, you know, the foreseeable future. I, I actually think that's a great medium to go with for certain things, but if that's to enhance gameplay, I'm all for it. But when it comes to releasing 
characters and things that should have been in the first incarnation of the game, that's a whole other story. I think in the WWE's case, they realizing they are realizing with their games that they have a limited shelf life. Because you can only play a wrestling game so far before the replay value goes in the toilet. What makes wrestling games fun is, you know, the created wrestlers, some of the cool matches you can do. Once that wears off, you don't have much more to offer. By doing something along the lines of the season pack, it makes people excited to play these new enhancements. So that helps add shelf life to the game. I just think that if you're going to do that, then price the game a little lower because the cost to own the game goes up. You're right, but at least I, I give THQ some props for doing it this way versus the Capcom way of releasing things in packs and then after like four or five months... Release the entire thing, uh, yeah, that that is true. Exactly. No, the, I mean, Capcom should have released a season pack too and they should have been like, hey, you know, pay give us 900 points... That'll cover every new costume that comes out and any new character that comes out and be done with it. At least we should have done that with Super Street Fighter 4 Arcade Edition. With Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3, it's a little different only because they did a lot of balancing. They added a couple of new characters and they pretty much changed the overall playability of the game, including, you know, modifying certain characters that were overpowered, which is fine. But they should have forecast the costumes and all that extra shit as like you said a season pass it would have made it more appealing and it would have made the 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 impact a little less i agree and the fact that the ultimate marvel vs. capcom 3 was only 40 bucks versus 60 bucks really doesn't help much when you know they're going to be doing those costume packs for each and every character in the game you know, there will be something else that costs you more money. And then after, you know, you spend money on each individual pack, they'll have a lower-priced ultimate pack that gives you everything that you just paid a, uh, in spurts for. Well, that's pretty much kind of what happened to some degree with people that pre-ordered the Batman game. You know, you pre-ordered the game to get X costume, and had you waited a little longer, you probably would have got all the costumes. I mean, it's great as a pre-order incentive, but for me, I just said to myself, why the fuck am I going to pre-order it? It's going to come out at some point. The Batman one, I'm not as mad at just because... Oh, I'm not mad either, but I'm just saying that using that to entice the retailer is is poor planning. Because a smart a smart customer is just going to be like, why the fuck am I going to go and, re- and reserve the game to get one costume? When I can pay you know, the same amount I'm paying to reserve it. And get the fi- get all the costumes. I hear you on that. I just meant that um, the way that they they were um, handing out the costumes. A lot of the costumes, like the Batman Beyond costume, was free before you had to pay for it because you could get it online from. Should I even forgot where that was from? But it was it was basically free. The um. There was another one that you got from drinking that Nas energy drink. Yep, you got the Batman Beyond from that one. That's yeah, where that. Right. Yep, the the Nas energy gave you Batman Beyond, and Best Buy gave you one, 
Amazon gave you one, and um, yeah, that was it. More than one from Best Buy. You did get one more than one from Best Buy, right? No, um, I got the Dark Knight Returns from Best Buy, and the um, costumes, the extra costumes for Catwoman and Robin. Ah, okay. I, I got the the Sinestro Corpse costume from the Green Lantern DVD. And that's the next thing I was going to mention. So I was like, they didn't release it on the console, per se. They released it with things that you were possibly going to buy anyway. Right. So it's like they they were kind of freebies, in a way. And the the energy drink, not so much, because I don't even know anybody that drinks that shit. No, that, that, that NOS water is garbage. But definitely, <laughs> I, I, can, I can understand where they were going with getting people to um, to get that stuff just because it was a great product tie-in, at least with some of the products. With NOS, I don't know what Batman Beyond, and we discussed this, had to do with NOS other than it being green, which correlates with the Joker, but whatever. I understand the connotations. I just think that incomplete games definitely are going to be something that people are going to have to fight hard to not get. And the thing is, Leafs, this is one thing we've said way too many times, and it's just a shame. The gaming community as a whole are a bunch of pussies. Yep, they can't unite for shit. We can, we can fight about the most mundane things, but when it comes to fighting against the, an injustice as a consumer, we rarely do it. Rarely. I mean, in all honesty, people can say, oh, it's because of better graphics and all this bullshit. No, it's not. Games are $60 a piece now because we bought all those fucking collector's editions and special editions back during the PS1 and PS2 days. That's correct. That's what let, you know, these game developers justify these higher prices. Because if you really look at it, strip away the graphics for a second and look at the games from, like, the NES and the Super NES. They're overall better gaming experiences than what we get now. They're longer games. You get more for your money. And it's not everything, because, I mean, take a game like Batman Beyond. I really feel that's worth the money, just because that game was really in-depth. But not every game is like that. Well, that's because the new the newer games are are pushed with style over substance. Very few games exactly. have storylines that are super engaging. And when you do have games that are super engaging like that, you really cherish them. I mean, I have to I have to cite games like Uncharted, which are fantastic storytelling. Uh, games like Metal Gear, um, going back, you know, games that when you watch and you play them, you're you're immersed in that story. Arkham City, Arkham Asylum, I can cite. As, as prime examples. Even Gears of War, for as, as hokey as it is, that story was done to the point where you knew that there was a beginning, a middle, and an end. And and, and that's what people look for. God, God of War is another game. It was... It meshed well together with so many factors that it made the gameplay experiences worthwhile. It made you chomp at the bit for the next installment. Same thing can be said with Darksiders. You and I have discussed that in terms of just engaging storytelling that when it's all said and done, you go, holy shit, I can't wait for the next one. 
Right. Those games are few and far, and when you do get them, you cherish them utterly. I mean, Elder Scrolls, Sky, and and even Skyrim are games that have that. The story is so deep and so and and woven so tightly that people play these games and disappear for months on end. Exactly, and that's the thing. I'm not trying to down online gaming in any way. I think it's fantastic, but too many companies are putting out games that strictly rely on online gaming. Yeah, online is a crutch. Online has become a crutch. I agree 100%. My gaming experience should not depend on other people. Nope. Because you know what? I mean, I understand you want to build community and you want to build uh, co-op gaming and and help people establish friendships. And that's fantastic. And I'm all for that. And I respect that. But not every game I play requires that. Like, I really don't need multiplayer in a game about James Bond. Because when you read about James Bond or watch a James Bond movie, who's the guy conducting the missions? James Bond. By himself. And even to take it further than that, a game like GoldenEye, the single-player game and the multiplayer online have really nothing to do with each other other than the the locale. And the characters. I mean, yeah, I mean, in one game, the single-player actually being stealthy and being a spy, and in the multiplayer, you're shooting the shit out of each other. Right. But but very few very few companies do that. I mean, a lot of times they will cut corners on the one player campaign just to, because the selling point is multiplayer, i.e. Black Ops, which I actually just finished from GameFly, and I will tell you, I played the single player campaign, and it was good. It was it was fairly nice, and then I got to the end, and I was just like, really, that was it? That was the end of this fucking game? Are you kidding me? Then I remembered. Oh yeah, Black Ops online. Yeah, it's like I would buy games like multi, um, Modern Warfare Three and Battlefield Three if the online was about actually playing the campaign with friends versus just blowing each other the fuck up. Yeah, I mean, blowing each other because up is is fun and it's fine and dandy, but it it does wear thin very quickly. I mean, I get that a lot of people love doing it, but for me, that shit, even if I'm the one killing everybody, because taking a game like Grand Theft Auto 3, I, I enjoy playing the multiplayer with our group of friends, But and I actually was the one winning very often because I was just setting traps for people, but that shit got boring really quickly because I was doing the same thing over and over again. Right. There's no, there's no, there's no growth as a gamer with that there's only growth from a competitive standpoint but just any sense of accomplishment you have it's only based on and grounded on achievements i think that there's more of a of a level of satisfaction finishing a a campaign on your own and just being like wow i beat that and 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 seeing that versus just you know getting a hundred kills yeah it's great you got a hundred kills in call of duty but you know somebody out there is beating demon souls with a platinum trophy, and that guy is God right now, you know? 
that guy's insane. Exactly, and I've seen that. There's there's a couple of, of dudes out there that have platinum trophies on 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 games like Demon Souls and and you know games like Elder Scrolls. They've gotten all the achievements and shit. And and those are people that have not only a sense of accomplishment but actually just wanted to get the most out of their purchase. And and I can respect that. I mean, you've gotten platinum trophies. How many? How many? How long were you playing Infamous to get a platinum trophy? And not only did you enjoy the game completely, but it 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 helped give you a sense of accomplishment when you finished it. Right. That's the thing. That's the reason why. As much as I hate to say it, again, I'm not shitting on the game per se, but it's just not my thing. Games like World of Warcraft are actually doing it right, just because they rely. 100% on online, really. But you're playing the actual game with other people. You're oh, yeah. accomplishing things with other people. Or you can do it yourself. Right, you can do it yourself. You won't get very far by yourself, but... You can do like, it. It's not some deathmatch type of repetitive bullshit. You can do different things every single day. They release packs all the time. They give you even more things to do. Well, you know the funny things thing... On the, the, Go ahead. Now, I was just saying, games on the console that do that are very few and far between, and the games that actually do it usually don't get much, much um, buzz or airplay or anything. You take a game like Crackdown One and Two. That's one of the few games where the online component is playing the game with other people. Right. Well, I I will cite something, and and I'm so angry that I can't enjoy it. And I want to cite DC Universe Online. DC Universe Online, when it was released, had the typical MMO model. You buy the game, you pay the subscription, you play the game, that's it. Some people liked it, some people didn't. When they made DC Universe Online free-to-play, the amount of people playing multiplied immensely. Now, here's the funny thing about that. You can play the game without any of the enhancements, for free up to a certain point. And then if you want to add certain enhancements, you pay and whatever, you move on. But the beauty of that is the fact that you're still getting community gameplay, but you're giving people incentive to keep playing. I I'll, I downloaded the game. It's an 18 gig download for the PS3. 18 gigs. And after I downloaded it, uh, the my hard drive for some reason was still full. Where I I haven't been able to play it, which is going to result in me needing to upgrade the hard drive on my PS3, but it's the fact that you're playing this game for free and you're still going to be able to enjoy a multiplayer experience. Right. You definitely should check it out. If you got space on your PS3, it's an 18 gig download, dude. It is ridiculous. Dude, my god, daughter is being like killing me on Facebook for not playing this game. My goddaughter. Oh, there you go. DC Universe Online is fun. A lot of people have told me great things. I really want to get in there and give it a shot myself. I mean, I'm probably going to try it, but i got so many other games to play. Oh, you and me both, dude. I, um, I'm still trying to get these Gamefly Q reviews put together, and they're going to be short. Like I said, I finished uh, Modern Warfare. I finished Black Ops. I finished G.I. Joe. They're all going up there, but... um. With regards to this, is there anything else you want to add? No, I just, I really hope, I mean, I hope we, we do as a community start, you know, raising our voices and stuff because 
we can make the, the designers do what we want. We can make the companies do what we want because they won't make money if, if, if they don't. No, I agree 100%. So we actually have to start bitching about it. That is true. If people don't get their act together, it's going to be a lot of incomplete games and a lot of empty pockets. Won't be mine. That's all I'm going to say. There you go. All right, brother. Cool. Thanks for sharing it. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, man. See ya. All right. In some other news, and speaking of live components, obviously you know that the Xbox Live dashboard received the update this week. Uh, Some of the things that you saw were the increased connect functionality. If you guys go to our Facebook fan page, you could have seen the walkthrough I did for the new Xbox Live dashboard. But one thing I did want to discuss is Verizon Fios obviously being involved, giving you 26 channels on Xbox Live. Um, the, The beauty of that is you'll be able to see programming from MTV, BET, Spike TV. But something very interesting is going to happen when you start watching files on Xbox Live. And that is that it's going to be actually want to be going to be measured by the Nielsen system, which is crazy. It's um they're going to be able to monitor viewer metrics through the files application which is which is madness. Nielsen is going to be gathering game playing information from rating device equipped homes for the past few years. Now they're going to start collecting that data from your Xbox Live experiences, which is just very revolutionary in my opinion and something that I want to definitely talk about further when it launches. Nielsen involvement now with console gaming. The other thing I wanted to talk about with Xbox Live is King of Fighters 13. You'll be able to check out the demo for that. Um, it should be out already, if not within the next few days, on Xbox Live. Um, definitely love myself some SNK fighters. Pick up King of Fighters 13, the demo, and pick up the game if you can. The only way to keep 2D gaming alive is by giving games like this a shot. So pick up the King of Fighters 13 demo on Xbox Live, and it'll be on PlayStation's net on the PlayStation Network next Tuesday the 13th. I've just been notified that Dark Helmet is on the air as well, and I'm gonna br- well he's holding I should say, and I'm gonna bring him on to discuss uh, some of the input he has to add with the conversation I had with Slick. DH, what's going on, brother? One game I'm surprised neither of you mentioned was Borderlands. That's because I haven't played that, that shit. <laughs> I am guilty of not playing uh, it. That that's a very solid game. It's it's yeah, it's a first person shooter don't want me to make you cookies. First person shooter, it's got the RPG elements, and yeah, you can play it all by yourself. Or you can have a few other people with you teaming up and taking on missions and doing side missions. And either way you look at it, it's just fun. It's fun. It's got ridiculous situations. Your guy can help the others with some of their abilities. And that's a good setup of how a game should be. And then it had add-ons that boosted your level cap. So that was a game that you know how can be built up well. And you can play it with others and enjoy it, no matter how you play it. Well, that's good. I have I actually have Borderlands as another game on my uh, GameFly queue to check out. So hopefully I will be checking that out shortly. And once I do, I'll be able to share my thoughts on it. Yeah, that was my main thing. I was like, you yeah, didn't see Borderlands. 
Yeah, I'm I'm guilty of just not playing it, dude. I mean, I wasn't really feeling it when I saw it, only because I wasn't feeling the style of gameplay. That doesn't mean I don't want to play it. I always say that. Just because I'm not feeling it to drop 60 bucks on it doesn't mean it's not something I'd play. I mean, I played fucking Black Ops, for God's sakes, and I'm not even a big FPS guy, but I, re- I wanted to see what the big deal was, you know? Yeah. And like, like you were saying earlier, a lot of the games player just popped out for profit they don't care about story it's like story what's that oh uh, here's a little 20 hour side mission let's blow shit up in the meantime yeah i think i finished black ops single player campaign in three days i think if you look at my raptor stats it would really it would give it up but i just broke it up playing an hour or two a night over the course of three or four days and by the time it was said and done i felt so underwhelmed with the ending of that game, that I was like, "Fuck me, man!" You know, I was I was just bummed. That is, that is just bad when you're like going through and you're like, "I'm oh, yeah, alright, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yep that that's a, that's pretty much it. After what would happen? Well, once you once you once I finished the campaign, they put you in zombie mode where you get to use John F. Kennedy and shoot zombies, and that was funny. And it was enjoyable for like 10 minutes, but I was like, all right, that's it. Uh, fuck this game. Dropped it right back in the envelope and sent it on its merry way. Very smart thing. Very smart thing. Because all their multiplayer is, ooh, blow shit up. whoop de whoop de Well, we'll see how it pans out. I'm hoping to, I'll probably at some point play Modern Warfare 3, and I'll see if their single-player campaign is improved to, a, to an extent. Hey, you're not the only one. I, I I still have to wait till the price drops before I even touch that one. So. There you go. Rentals, my friend. Rentals. <laughs> Anything else you want to add, my friend? No, that's it. I'll be listening in for movie news, and I may have to chime back in for that. Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> All right. All right, brother. Thanks. Yeah. All right, the last bit of video game news I wanted to share with you guys was also about the Xbox Live update and that's something I noticed late last night, early yesterday and it involves Netflix I love watching Netflix on Xbox Live with the new features that were added Um, while they are Kinect centric to a degree I was bummed to see the removal of the party mode on Netflix very bummed about that Uh, party mode was something I enjoyed greatly on netflix watching movies with some of my friends it gave a mystery science theater vibe to it um it allowed me and some of our staffers to do the minority film report i remember i did one of the minority film reports with ant one of our former staffers and we reviewed the film teeth we watched the film together on xbox live in party mode and then did a skype call recorded it and it it was it was great it was seamless very mystery science theater like we had a lot of good laughs and i think that that was a great feature that i am sad to say is not there vivo hbo go nor files are going to have party mode which is which is fucked up i think that the worst part of it is that this new app platform is not supporting video party mode at this time Will they bring it back? Who knows? But it's something that I felt set the system apart from other consoles with regards to just community gaming and community video viewing. I think nothing would be cooler than watching your favorite HBO show 
with your party in a room if they all have HBO on their cable provider. Unfortunately, it seems that not everybody felt the same way, so as of right now, there is no party mode. Sorry to break it to you guys. All right, that's going to wrap it up. We are going to go right into the movie news because there's a couple of things to discuss, and I figured that rather than take a commercial break, we could just jump right into it. Let's talk movies. Movies this week have a combination of lots of what-the-fuck movie news and some sequel news, but the first thing I wanted to open up with was Michael Bay's reported involvement in a new Transformers. Now, the funny thing about Michael Bay and Transformers is that the first one was was good, the second one many people hated, and it was a great popcorn flick for me. Uh, the third one was the one where he really just, and it's a, it's a poor choice of words, but Michael Bay blew his load with the third one. It was just like an assault on the senses, sensory overload, great special effects, uh, fantastic character development for some of the characters involved, especially the robots, particularly Megatron. But the funny thing was, Michael Bay went on record as saying that this would be his final Transformers film. And... Of course, money rules all, and Michael Bay's being enticed back to do a fourth Transformers, but he is not going to do it until he completes his smaller film that he's working on called Pain and Gain, which is a comedy that he wants to have Mark Wahlberg and The Rock be involved in. Basically, it's almost like the other guys, but it follows an article about a pair uh, uh, about a 1999 article from the Miami Times that follows a pair of bodybuilders who get mixed up in an extortion ring and, and a kidnapping that goes horribly awry. Now, it's been described as having a tone similar to Fargo. The film's rumored to have a $20 million budget, and it's going to be produced by Michael Bay and Donald DeLine, with Paramount Pictures distributing the film. Now, the funny thing about that is that when you look at films like that, just small projects that Michael Bay does... They're met with mixed responses, but I think considering all the hoopla he's been involved in for the newest Transformer film and the previous three films that he's done, I think this will allow him to go back to his roots and do something differently. I think doing a comedy with Mark Wahlberg and The Rock would be interesting, especially with the comedic timing that Wahlberg had with um, Will Farrell and the other guys. Not only that, but The Rock was also very, very good in the other guys as well so i'm really looking forward to this pain and gain film just because it's going to be a, a great departure from robots and shit blowing up but once this movie's done we know that michael bay will be going back to the franchise that's made him the most money in my opinion other than bad boys i think and that would be uh transformers now when i mentioned this on the fan page a lot of people are like oh well what what's left to do and I'd like to cite something from the 1985 Transformers film, and I don't believe it was 85, I think it was 86 or 87. Um, if I am incorrect, I apologize. But nonetheless, in the original Transformers animated film, when the Decepticons were destroyed, well, most of them, and Megatron was left for dead, 
they were brought back by Unicron. Megatron became Galvatron, the Decepticons became Cyclonus and the Swoops, and the beauty of that is that you can actually go that route in a new Transformers film. It's a matter of digging into the mythology and doing it, but at this point, you really need to use something like that to keep the franchise going. Slick promptly reminded me in caps that it was 1986, damn it. And I apologize that I was fucking six years old when the shit came out. Anyway, um, the fact is that this is a great... <laughs> Slick just told me to fuck your age. But um, this is a great opportunity to go into the 1986 film and use the Unicron and Megatron to Galvatron scenario only because it's all that's left to do. If you destroyed all the Decepticons, Optimus Prime pretty much killed Megatron dead at the end of Transformers. Um, and most of the, Decept the, the Decepticon forces were decimated. You can go and do something with Unicron. Maybe you take the, the remains of the Decepticons, you shoot them into space instead of dumping them in the ocean. Since the, since the humans are wary after what happened with Megatron, you, you take them in a freighter, you send them into space... And they'll be destroyed by getting pulled in by the sun's gravitational pull. Turns out that the ship makes its way to Unicron. Unicron realizes that Megatron's spark is still slightly alive. Boom, he brings Megatron back to exact his revenge on the Autobots and Optimus Prime. Easy peasy. Shit writes itself. Will he do that? Who knows? But I think that's as easy as you can get with a fourth Transformers film. Now, with regards to the Autobots, we already saw that Optimus Prime reached out to the stars and new Autobots showed up on Earth. It's just as easy as continuing to have that beacon out there and new Autobot signatures coming to Earth, scanning new items. Boom, you got all these new guys you can add. Piece of cake. With the Dinobots, which everybody wants to see on the silver screen, it's as easy as having new auto... The, the Dinobots make their way to Earth, uh, Consider considering that they're outcasts from the regular Autobots because of their savagery, and they will in turn go scan some dinosaurs in a museum, and boom, your Dinobots are done. That It really is that simple. You can say that the, that the Dinobots were... Um, not Autobots, not Decepticons, they were their own entity. And you can build off of that and add something different to the story. Uh, again, this is me just doing some some some, ar some armchair storytelling, but it's really that simple. If you dig too deep and you start citing shit from the comic books and all these other films, you run the risk of going and fucking things up. You did a great job with 3, you can do a fantastic job with 4, by, like I said, reformatting the Decepticons to their, you know, 1986 movie counterparts, introducing Unicron, nothing would, no greater effect would be, uni, would be more, put it like this, no effect would be greater than Unicron in space and the Autobots going into space, Star Wars style, to fight Unicron. I think it would be awesome, it would be a great homage to the 1986 film. Will they do it? I have my doubts. I think at the end of the day, though, it's something where I really hope they go that route. All right, the first bit of what-the-fuck movie news comes from Vulture's website. 
Neil Moritz, who is working on the Total Recall remake, is looking to reboot the Starship Troopers franchise. Screenwriters Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz are working on the script. If you remember, Starship Troopers originally was released in 1997, and it was loosely based on the on the Robert A. Heinlein novel, which was the basis for Starship Troopers. From there, we all know the household names that that movie spawned. Luminaries like Casper Van Dien, Dina Mayer, Denise Richards, Jake Busey, who is one of the greatest actors ever, and I'm sure Josh will agree, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Patrick Muldoon, and Michael Ironside. The film originally was had a $105 million budget. It made $121 million worldwide. Rebooting a film that was pretty much panned for being awful, but just a guilty pleasure by all is ridiculous. I personally would leave Starship Troopers the fuck alone and work on something else, but it's easier to reboot something that was terrible with the intent of making it better when you know for a fact it's probably going to be just as terrible. Leave Starship Troopers alone. It's a guilty pleasure that many of us have watched countless times, myself included, and move on to something else. Go and make another movie based on another graphic novel. Simple as that. Box office numbers... Twilight, Breaking Dawn, continues to rule the box office, $16.9 million. It's made $247 million worldwide. The Muppets was number two. Hugo Cabaret was number three. Arthur Christmas was four. Happy Feet 2 was five. Jack and Jill was six. The Descendants was number seven. Immortals was eight. Tower Heist was nine. And Puss in Boots was ten. In some other sequel news, Deadline is reporting that Peter Weller has joined the cast of Star Trek II. As of as of this week's episode, we don't know what room what role he will be playing. A lot of people thought he would be playing Khan, which is not the case. I will be sharing that later on in the segment. But Peter Weller will be joining Star Trek II. Now, if you remember last week, we discussed, and the week prior, we discussed the reboot of the Monsters TV series, and we wondered. How shitty could it possibly get? Well, it seems Bloody Disgusting actually got a description from the show, which is being headed up by Brian Singer. Here's the synopsis, and I'm sure you guys are going to love this. The show is going to focus on 10-year-old Eddie Munster, who is unaware that he's a werewolf, and that his family is composed of terrifying creatures. The madness begins when a baby bear attacks a scouting trip, only it turns out that this bear is actually Eddie transformed into a werewolf. Eddie is unaware of his metamorphosis, and it forces his, the family to move in order to protect the family's secret. The coming-of-age story gets weirder as he fights against his family when he learns of a shocker. They're a family of flesh-eaters. A few other random character notes. Lily Munster has an eating disorder and eats suicide victims. Grandpa Munster is a 600-year-old shapeshifter, and Marilyn Munster was adopted when her mother tried to eat her as a baby. That is the plot synopsis, ladies and gentlemen, for this newest reboot of The Monsters. Based on that, I can almost guarantee that this will completely suck. When you start going coming of age and, and all this bullshit, not only that, but they're not even mentioning what Herman Munster is, who is just as important in The Monsters show as anyone else, I just have my worries that it's not going to be successful. But who knows? It may be met with open arms. Me? I'm just going to meet it with a shotgun. That's how I'm going to meet it. And speaking of meeting 
televisions with shotguns. The newest sci-fi classic is definitely worthy of dropping your television into the fucking ocean. And that is from our buddies at Sci-Fi, and it's going to be the Jersey Shore Shark Attack. I kid you not, the Jersey Shore Shark Attack. Slick knows about this from Facebook, but you guys are going to get a kick out of this. The film stars Paul Sorvino, Joey Fatone, William Atherton, Tony Sirico, well, Tony Sirico, and Vinny from the Jersey Shore. Guaganino, Guagnano, Guano, Bat Guano, whatever the fuck. Vinny Bat Guano. That's what I'm just going to call him from now on. Anyway, they're all in the film, and here's the wonderful plot synopsis for this fucking gem. Rare swarms of sharks are hitting the Jersey Shore because of illegal underwater drilling, leaving the locals to save the day. Tony Sirico is playing Captain Sally, and, um,. Jack Scalia is going to be playing a character named Moretti. Paul Sorvino is the corrupt mayor. William Atherton is a greedy developer who wants to tear down the boardwalk and leave our poor Guidos beachless. I kid you not. Uh, Vinny Batguano will be playing a reporter, and Joey Fatone will be playing himself. Big shocker there. The, the problem with this is, I expect shitty films from sci-fi. We know this. Slick has done plenty of minority reports to reflect that, but the worst part of this shit is the fact that it's Jersey Shore reference horror films. It it boggles my fucking mind that you can come up with this bullshit, but I know that Slick will deliver a minority report a minority film report on this gem of a movie, which I'm sure has Oscar, MTV Movie Award, and Pulp Classic written all over it. Yuck. Moving on. Our favorite Fox show, 24, is getting the big screen treatment, which some of you already knew, but Deadline is reporting that 20th Century Fox is already looking at a spring 2012 date to begin shooting the 24 movie with Kiefer Sutherland back in the role of Jack Bauer. So be on the lookout for that. Spring 2012 production, probably releasing late 2012, early 2013. Occasionally I watch BBC programming and um, I actually watch it primarily for the F word with Gordon Ramsay, but I left it on in the background, and they were playing a show called Graham Norton, which is a talk show, and Bradley Cooper was on it, and I actually heard a little bit about The Hangover Part 3. Based on what he said, they're looking to close out the trilogy and probably have it take place in Los Angeles. How legit that is, who knows, but he is hoping to begin filming it in September, and of course, uh, Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis have confirmed that they would return. So yes, you will be getting a Hangover 3. There you go. Last week I discussed that Patty Jenkins from Monster was going to be directing Thor 2. Needless to say, that is no longer the case. Patty Jenkins is no longer going to do Thor 2, and they are currently searching for a replacement. The reason for the departure is said to have been creative differences. The suggestion is that she might return for a different superhero movie in the future. As of right now, Thor 2 is slated for release November 15th, 2013. 
In some other sequel news, Adam Sandler is just not satisfied with churning out pieces of shit like Jack and Jill, but it seems he's going to go back to the well with sequels now by doing a sequel to Grown Ups. As of right now, they are working on a screenplay, and this would be the first time that Sandler has agreed to do a sequel to one of his projects. If it does happen, Kevin James, Chris Rock, Schneider, and Spade are said to return. Jack and Jill, of course, is underperforming, grossing $76 million worldwide. That's less than a third of the $271 million that Grown Ups made, which is his most successful feature to date. I think, honestly, Adam Sandler really needs to reevaluate the movies he puts out. Grown Ups wasn't a complete pile of shit. It, it was enjoyable only because of the ensemble cast. I think that him going and using the same childish bullshit gags he's used before is starting to wear thin. I think his comedy has not evolved, but he seems to continue to be box office gold until people stop watching it. Sandler will continue to churn the shit out. Simple as that. You don't like it? Don't watch it. Now, as I said earlier, Peter Weller was cast in Star Trek 2, and there were strong rumors that Benicio Del Toro was going to be involved with rumors that he was going to be playing Khan. As of right now, Benicio Del Toro is no longer involved. Turns out that Edgar Ramirez and Jordi Mola from Blow are up for the part of Khan. Alice Eve and Peter Weller, as I said, have joined the cast. The rumor is that Khan would be played by Del Toro, Ramirez, or Mola. But the original uh, story dictates that Khan was originally intended to be Indian. So it's very interesting to see. As of right now, the character of Khan is something that has been talked about quite often. And I think that doing something with Khan in the new Star Trek universe would allow them to take some liberties with his character. I mean, Benicio Del Toro, I think, would have been a good actor for it. But since you're reimagining the universe in a completely different light, you can cast any solid actor in that role and they can be allowed to create something memorable with Khan. I know Ricardo Montalban is the the um, he is the measuring stick for that role. But since you're doing something so new with Star Trek, you can probably do something uh, different, which might as well. I mean, Nero with Eric Bana was very well done in the first Star Trek movie by J.J. Abrams, so why not take a different approach with Khan? I really would like to see... I, would have, I wouldn't have mind seeing Benicio Del Toro in the role, but like I said, you can get any solid actor, and with a good story, I think that Khan will do well in the new Star Trek universe. Simple as that. We got two last things to close things out, and I see that Spill Bag of Ice referenced it, and I'm actually going to get to it right now. And that is a report out of Variety that Lionsgate is moving forward with a remake of American Psycho. Nobu Jones is going to adapt a new version of the Bret Easton Ellis novel. Jones's take is on the novel is to turn it into a story of how Patrick Bateman would fare in New York City today, showing how much the world has changed since the 1980s. Now, I have a couple of issues with this. Number one, I feel that American Psycho... Is, is flawless in execution. Is it 100% true to the book? No. But considering some of the subject matter in the book, I think it was fine for that. American Psycho, the book, 
is in a class of its own. Some of the stuff that is shown in that, well, that is depicted in that book, had it been shown on screen, probably would have made people nauseous. And I'll just leave it with a scene with a, sto- uh, a section of the story involving a rat and a hamster tube and an orifice on a woman. We'll just leave it at that. The fact is that this is another film that I feel just does not require any sort of a remake treatment. I think American Psycho is a film that is timeless only because of the great work from Christian Bale. It was one of those films that continued to show how versatile of an actor he is. He created a a, a memorable Patrick Bateman that, when compared to the book's version, is still pretty spot on. I mean, I read American Psycho three times, one of my favorite books. And the worst part in seeing something like this and the fact that Lionsgate is willing to do it is that Lionsgate tends to churn out these horror movies, these low-budget, simple horror films that turn a quick profit and they move on to the next one. It's as simple as that. And to cite something that Spilled Bag of Ice said in the chat, which is why don't they just remake a movie from a year ago? That's pretty much where we're at. Why don't they just remake... You know what? Let's just remake Lord of the Rings. Or let's just remake Avatar while we're at it. It, it, I I have to agree that something like American Psycho is still fairly fresh. It's not a super old film. And frankly, I think that it did the the Brett Easton Ellis novel justice and should be left alone. I recommend that if you have not read American Psycho, you do yourselves a favor and you read it. Not only because it is an amazing piece of storytelling, but because the level of viciousness that Patrick Bateman exhibited in that book would in no shape, way, or form work with the new PG-13 horror motif that Hollywood has churned out. It's ridiculous. And the fact that you want to take uh, an 80s yuppie and see how he would fare in, in, in in a 21st century setting is absurd. What are you going to do? Do a middle-aged Patrick Bateman or an older Patrick or a 50-year-old Patrick Bateman? What is that going to accomplish? It's it's pretty much like taking Gordon Gecko in Wall Street Money Never Sleeps and making him a fucking serial killer. Because that's pretty much what you're doing. Why not just make Gordon Gecko a serial killer and, and be done with it? Seriously. Because that's that's where they want to take it, and I have a feeling, like anything else that Hollywood decides to remake, that it's going to fail miserably. Simple as that. And last but not least, I've discussed on in multiple episodes the Spike Lee remake of Old Boy, and the fact that you know they were working on adapting it for American audiences. Twitch Film has reported that Colin Firth who was um, going to be playing the villain in the film, has decided to withdraw from playing the character that tor- that torments Josh Brolin in this film. It's unknown if they're going to be able to get someone else before the shooting starts in 2012, but Old Boy is a very, very, very strange film, only because the source material that it's based off of is so is so vicious in nature, but yet so well done that... I feel that Spike Lee is just not the director suited to bring this to American audiences. Seeing Josh Brolin as the lead, I I, I have mixed feelings about it, but the fact that an Oscar winner like Colin Firth would withdraw from this film shows that there's just no belief in its success, which is unfortunate because 
it probably would translate well for American audiences, but I, I'm just concerned with Spike Lee's involvement. I really am. I think that anybody else could probably do a passable job, but I really don't see Spike Lee being the man for this, but I've been proven wrong before, so don't hold me to it. As of right now, it's scheduled to start filming in 2012. Well, ladies and gents, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Um, I guess we sh- let's close it out. You've just heard My Take Radio episode 119 for Thursday, December 8th, 2011. If you have any questions, concerns, or would like to be a guest on a future episode of My Take Radio, you can email me at mtrhost at mytakeradio.com. If you want to leave any messages on the feedback line, the call-in number is 347-815-0MTR, 347-815-0687. If you want to follow us on any of these social media networks, you can follow us on Twitter, My Take Radio. You can also look for us on Facebook or add us to your circle on Google+. If you want to ask any questions about mixed martial arts, video games, movies, comics, tech, and any of the other stuff we cover, you can also look us up on Formspring, formspring.me forward slash mytakeradio. Want to take MTR to go? Pick up the MTR app for $1.99 in the Android Marketplace on Amazon or in the iTunes Marketplace for your iOS devices. It is also compatible with the iPad, and it is cheaper than a cup of coffee. Gives you access to the newest episodes of MTR in 96K and 64K stereo. In addition to that, you'll get access to app-exclusive programming, including My Take Radio Behind the Mic and the other interview series, which is My Take Radio Beyond the Mic. We're also going to start adding some video stuff to it in the near future. And we're going to be adding stuff to our YouTube channel, which if you want to subscribe to keep up, it's youtube.com forward slash TV. We're also going to be launching a Vimeo channel as well, which will probably be TV. Be on the lookout in 2012, little teaser with the MTR Network. You're going to find out very soon what the MTR Network is and what it will be doing with all our programming for all of our friends that share similar ideas and similar shows. MTR Network 2012. I am also contemplating possibly taking MTR TV and moving it to My Take Video, which I've been a little hesitant to use only because its initials are MTV, but My Take Video, the My Take Network, be on the lookout for that in 2012. There's a little teaser for you guys to close things out. If you don't want to use the apps, you can also listen to MTR on Stitcher. Head over to stitcher.com forward slash mytake. Enter the mytake promo code to win a $100 gift card courtesy of MTR and Stitcher. You can also catch MyTake Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Subscribe to us on iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, Blueberry, and Miro as well. We also simulcast with Mixler, so you'll be able to listen to MTR from the Facebook fan page as well. That's it, guys. Just do us a favor. If you are getting the shows off iTunes or you are getting them via the app, please take a moment and rate the show. It would help us move up in the rankings, and we'd really appreciate it. Make sure to pick up an MTR shirt, and if you're doing any shopping, please use the My Take Radio Amazon affiliate store and help us out that way. I'll see you guys next week. We'll be talking about the King of Chinatown and a host of other things. 
Catch you guys later. I'm out. Peace. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the guys for MMA Gospel for having me on this week. I will see you later. I'm rich, bitch! I think taking us out this week, we are going to go with the Final Fantasy VII Omen of Geneva from ocremix.org.